Well, there's been a major increase in the number of newborn Māori babies taken from their mothers, highlighted by the recent case of Hawke's Bay Hospital put into lockdown as Oranga Tamariki social workers tried to remove a child from its teenage mother. We've come up to uplift baby. My view is that you cannot uplift. She's done nothing wrong. I'm going to well, ask I've you been... both just to leave. No, we don't trust them. The Children's Commissioner says the state's care of children has displayed significant structural racism. This is just a complete fiasco. You're coming back. The taking of Māori babies from their mothers is a crisis in hiding. Thousands of protesters have turned out across the country demanding no more Māori children be removed from Fano and put in state care. The process of removing tamariki has stirred anger among Māori not seen in 15 years. You can't solve brown men's problems with white men's tools. The unity on show here suggests a new approach to the care of tamariki is inevitable. Well, maybe not so inevitable, given that newsroom's Melanie Reid broke the stories on babies being taken from their mothers that caused so much anger and anguish just over a year ago now. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, I'm going back to her to ask... There have been five official inquiries since you broke that story last year. What has happened well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what everybody's asking, what exactly has happened. Oranga Tamariki will tell you, look, they've, they've made um, manoeuvres here, there and everywhere to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. Uh, social workers inside Oranga Tamariki say nothing's happened. The iwi leaders will say nothing's happened. And, you know, as you know, so many Māori leaders have said, look, we need her to resign because nothing's actually happened. Who survives? Five inquiries, of which are, they've all been just a complete disaster for Oranga Tamariki. You're talking about the chief executive of Oranga Tamariki, Grania Moss. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit like... The analogy I give is if, is if Grania Moss was the captain of a ship, it, it's like she just keeps hitting the rocks. You know, inquiry after inquiry, year after year, surely you would change the captain. But, you know, she's still there on this boat that's, you know, barely, or this ship that's barely afloat. So we'll talk a bit more about Gronya Moss in a moment because you wrote a piece about her on Newsroom earlier this month. But first, can I ask you, Mel, what happened after that investigation to you, in terms of the work that you were doing? Did it just stop? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> um, the uplift story really opened the floodgates. We were getting an email like every eight minutes, either from uh, people who had had their kids taken off them or people inside Oranga Tamariki. And there was a situation with caregivers saying, we're getting no support, it's absolutely appalling. So it was that situation. And then there was the situation inside Oranga Tamariki where the social workers were coming to me and saying, you're so on track, please, please keep going because we actually can't do our jobs. Now, if you watch carefully the story about the uplift in Hastings, what you will see is the social workers saying, we have to follow the process. There's an order there to uplift them, and that's what we're enforcing. Oh, Surround your baby. <clears throat> They're trying to oh, make no, you no. give baby away. Don't no. hand your baby over to them. We have to follow the protocol. We have to take advice from Wellington. They were going out and they were ringing seniors. They were ringing Wellington. They were ringing lawyers. And still, uh, the decision was to 
try and uplift that baby. Now, this is what the social workers talk to me about endlessly, that they're in this situation now where there is, they call it the deprofessionalisation of social work, where they um, have been trained in ethics, decision-making based on best practice, and now they're in these sort of offices ticking boxes and, and begging for money and actually sort of being unable to do their job. So an example um, that was given to me, this woman said, look, okay, I'm called to a, to a house, the family I know, um, there's three kids under 10, there's a baby under one, the parents are on meth, they're off their faces, they've left the kids. I go and I say, right, we're going to take these kids, I know the extended whanau, I'll take them to the auntie. So she takes these kids, she puts them in a safe place, and then she goes back to the office and she gets blown sky high because, because where she's taking the kids, they're not OT approved, yet they're family but they're not OT approved and so she says what is happening then is because there's so much kind of of this kind of red tape going on that social workers are just they're, they're being left in a, in a situation where they're expected just to leave the kids there. They know there's no there's nowhere else to take them at that you know point in time but they you know they can't actually function on making sort of ethical decisions based on best practice and based on experience. And so you say you're getting an email, you know, every eight minutes, and just focusing on the social workers, what they were telling you. I mean, the thing that comes through from your stories and other stories about this is that there are no names, which seems to me part of the thing is that these people are too afraid to put their names to their stories even. Oh, absolutely. And even telling you the story that I've just explained to you, they're like, I'm going to get into trouble. So basically they are like, if they know I've spoken to you, we're fired. And so I think if you saw some of our last um, pieces, there was two social workers in there who had you know, refuse to change an affidavit or or wouldn't put their name to a court document or demanded something be changed because they thought it was inaccurate, it was going into a court. So they're both out of jobs. Like so so there's this absolute sort of fear in the offices, according to the social workers, that you cannot actually have a rational conversation. You can't you can't put on the table, look, this isn't working, this isn't working, that isn't working. You can't critique it and make it better because you're not actually allowed to say anything. You're considered a stirrer, you're considered um, you know, you bring it you're letting the office down. They're saying the managers and the supervisor are more interested in the KPIs and actually the you know and making sure that they look good than Looking after the kids. Yeah. So did you, you travelled around the country and talked to a lot of these social workers face to face? I did. And, you know, of course I'd like them to go on the record, but I'm also, I also totally understand why they won't. I mean, I wouldn't if I was working in there and I didn't want um, to lose my job because, you know, they talk about being sort of alienated and marginalised and set aside. You know, there's some really serious stories of, like, a toxic culture, bad management. What's become sort of apparent to me is this corporatisation, if you like, 
of the social services. You know, we have now got, you know, Gronya Moss as a CEO. She's got 10 deputy chief executives. I mean, who, I ask you, who has 10 deputy chief executives? You've got really experienced social workers being replaced by what they call, you know, youth workers or care workers. So, for example, in one of the youth justice uh, centres, they, you know, they've got 100 staff in a 24-hour shift. Three of them are social workers. The managers aren't social workers. You know, the trainers aren't social workers. She's got, of her 10 deputy chief executives I just mentioned, one of them's a social worker. They all talk about this isn't the blind leading the blind. This is the blind leading the qualified. And why? What is the thinking? Is there a strategy there or is it just that there's a shortage of social workers? No, I don't think there's a shortage of social workers because a heck of a lot of the really experienced social workers, they got the biff in, you know, when they restructured. And they will all say to me, because I've spoken to some of them as well, oh, we were the ones that would put our foot down and go, no, that's not okay. There's also the whole Māori framework that they say that they're working in. And the social workers just say to me, it's just complete rubbish. It's like tokenism with a capital T. That you're in in an office and they go, and they say to you, right, now here at Aranga Tamariki, we've got to be bicultural, so we need lots of Maori words in the reports, like lots of Maori words and lots of talking about the far nose. And and, and honestly, that's how the social workers talk to me. And then just like crying with like laughter like how crazy it is yeah, I remember one social worker said to me she said it's it's like um, Gronya Moss and Tracy Martin are on some sort of fantasy island with uh, their spin doctors and the whole of the front line just are rolling their eyes as they produce or regurgitate yet another press release and that they're not they're absolutely not even operating in reality. The silencing of social workers, this seems to be a really strong theme in the whole thing, you know, from the messages that you got from them and from talking to uh, uh, John Derrick, who is a social worker and is doing a PhD on social work. He says... What I've heard consistently uh, from many, many social workers over many years now is that social workers who speak up on ethical or political issues within Child, Youth and Family and now within its successor, Oranga Tamariki, are subject to bullying or they're otherwise disadvantaged within the organisation. But is there is there no kind of attempt to work together on it and listen to what they have to say? What is repeatedly said to me from social workers is there's no really good complaints process. So social workers work like this. There's a manager, there's a supervisor, and there's a team of about five, right? And so if you want to complain about your manager or your supervisor, you have to go to your supervisor or your manager. And so there's no there's no way through it. And they... OT have sort of given these long explanations about how you can get to someone independent and you can ask this and you can... you can, But, you know, you imagine working in regional New Zealand, for example, in a small office. I mean, it's just... it's There isn't a complaints process. They've got... Most of them have got absolutely no time for the PSA and they say that they've sold out to OT and they have full-time workers sitting, you know, at Gronje Moss's side. Um, and... Really, there's nowhere to go. And so, you know, it's like I got this sort of text late last night by from one of the women that I've seen and spoken to extensively, and she said, look, 
you know, this is what you need to understand. There's 50 of us here, you know. Um, there's three people on stress leave. There's four people that have left this month. There's eight people looking for new jobs. And she said, I am going. I'm, I'm, I've resigned. No amount of money is going to mean that I can put up with this. It sounds like it's beyond totally even just, talking to the boss about it. But you can't. But that's the point. Is that what boss? What I have in front of me is um, a few quotes from social workers because they sort of said, "Look, New Zealanders constantly ask the question: Why does New Zealand have such a terrible child abuse statistics?" And you know, it's and she sort of said, "Look, it's my opinion that the way our child protection services run is definitely my part of the reason. It's been my experience that management treat the social workers like idiots. They." Uh, take very little notice of the assessments, ideas and the needs and we're just treated like this disposable commodity and I can tell you of many incidents where the safety and well-being of the children has been compromised due to the management holding the purse strings tight, being more concerned about the cost than the outcome for the child and I think this comes back to the Minister, Gronje Moss, everybody needs to actually start being honest and face the truth and stop pretending, get their head out of the sand and stop pretending that everything's okay because it's not. You wrote a couple of pieces earlier this month about uh, Gronya Moss, the fact that she left Bupa as the chief executive very quickly and then soon after she was appointed the chief executive of Oranga Tamariki. There was an interview with Tracy Martin, the minister, on BFM where she was pretty angry and suggested it was a personal attack on Gronje Moss and didn't seem to want to address some of the issues behind that. I don't have a response. This is two articles. I mean, I, I'm going to ask this question. So I don't have a response on this. Obviously, I'm going to have to digest well, the accusations that have been made inside these articles by anonymous people um, and talk to my staff about what I need to follow up on and what I don't. So that's the first thing. I'm not going to make any statements based off um, comments by anonymous people. But I want to ask you this. If somebody rang around everybody you'd ever worked with and everybody you'd ever met or everybody you'd ever interacted with, do you think that they wouldn't find somebody to say something mean about you? Like you've said, yeah, sure, if you go and ring around everybody, you'll find someone that doesn't like you. But what they're, what they're displaying uh, is, is sort of a number of different voices that are pointing to a certain culture in an organisation that seems to be a problem. So you're suggesting that these articles have been written to highlight a culture in Orangatamariki as opposed to a personal attack on one, one person? I actually thought it was just a bit embarrassing, a bit pathetic. Um, there are all these issues, they're in her portfolio, they're really, really serious, and the truth needs to be faced about what they are, and let's fix them. Why do you pretend that they're not happening? Do you hear back from Gronje Moss? Do you hear back? I mean, oh, you, you've approached her for Oh, yes, but, but they don't do interviews. They do these long-winded, written explanations about everything and say that they can't really talk about um, individual cases, which I think is fine. I, I understand that. Um, I know that it's difficult that people that are speaking out won't be named because they, they say, look, not only will they get fired from their jobs, but they won't get a job in the public service again or they won't. it'll be hard for them to get 
a job again and I think that everyone knows that in this day and age if you kind of talk out if you whistle blow you'll be in you'll be in trouble and I think in that interview Tracy Martin said look people have got my email they can come to me I've been into Oranga Tamariki offices I've sat with social workers um, people know my email I've never had any of these issues brought to my attention by social workers inside of Oranga Tamariki, right? I have personal friends, really good friends. My matron of honour is uh, an Oranga Tamariki social worker on the front line. She knows how to get hold of me. I mean, can you imagine going over your supervisor's head, going over your manager's head, going over 10 chief executives' head, going over the CEO's head and just going to Tracy Martin saying, hey, hey mate, this is what's happening? I mean, it's never going to happen. What the social workers will also talk about is the caseloads and how they're now being told that you can have 20 to 25 caseloads and that's what OT have come back and, and said to us that that's a reasonable and fair amount. But what they're saying is, hang on right there, you can have six kids in one case. So you can't do it by case loads. You've got to do it by the number of kids. If you're dealing with six kids times 20 or 25, then don't expect to ever get any sleep anytime soon because you'll be working 24-7. And the other thing is that you don't get less cases if you have a really highly complex case that takes an enormous amount of time. So they don't assess the cases you know, one by one. It's just like you've got that many. And so, and, and, and it's also been said if they get annoyed with you in the office, if they don't like you, which is part of this whole bullying culture, that basically they'll give you the most complex, impossible cases to deal with. One of the big things is training. So you might have seen in the article that we wrote, like, you can't hongi a computer. And there was a sort of whole section about the training. So a lot of the people that were um, engaged in training social workers have been kind of moved on. And um, they've done this whole e-learning thing, which all the social workers say is just a complete joke and totally ineffectual. So I'm telling you, that is what, all the social workers say in common that it is the blind leading the qualified. That the Gronyamos school of operation is corporatisation and that we are replacing qualified social workers that truly know what they're doing, that have spent three to four years getting degrees, they are being replaced with people who are unqualified. Therein lies the biggest problem with Oranga Tamariki. On the other hand, somebody, some people might say, well, what's wrong with you know, corporatising something like this, an agency like this that needs to that needs to have surely some protocols in place to make sure that making of sure course, that some processes are followed. Oh, of course, processes and protocols need to be followed. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. But um, you've got to ask whether someone who's got no background in social work, no background in the public service. Uh, knows very little about uh, Māori culture, you're trying to operate in that framework, can actually run an organisation like Oranga Tamariki. I mean, what are... I mean, how many CEOs survive that many reviews? 
look, I have not seen ever seen this behaviour. Um, I know the improvements we have made to the organisation and um, the relationship that I have had with her over the last three years. So um, I, I'm obviously going to have to go away and, as I say, have a look at these things. So Grainne Moss is still there. The Minister, Tracy Martin, is still there. And the social workers on the front line are so distraught and so over it. You know, in offices up and down the country, you know, half of them are leaving, some are on suicide watch, many are on stress leave. I mean, there is an issue, and it's like everyone's sort of standing around in some sort of fantasy land in Wellington pretending that that they are doing the very best for the children. Now, I'm sure they think they are, but that is not what the social workers are saying, and I'm talking about from Invercargill up. It's not, I just haven't interviewed or talked to three or four. I've talked to hundreds. Tracy Martin wants to speed up planned changes that would shift Oranga Tamariki from a child crisis service to a proper care and protection service. Is anybody saying anything good, that they are seeing signs of change? No. No, nobody. No. You haven't had any messages from anyone saying, hang on, this is a good, good organisation that does good work. Oh, one. I've had one message. I've had one email out of probably 400 one. in the last month. When social workers aren't allowed to speak up, they're being prevented from speaking up about ongoing injustice and ongoing harm that's being perpetrated on Māori. So I simply don't think it's good enough um, to say, look, they're employees and they should keep their heads down. Um, As professionals, as social workers um, who are subject to a code of ethics, I think they have an ethical and professional responsibility to speak up. And the key thing is that the profession needs to be supporting them to do so. There's been decades of it, and so it's like the way that they 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 talk about it to me is that the you can't just change the name, you can't just rebrand SIFs with a Maori name or Tamariki. You can't do that and expect it to change. It's like um, you know rotting wood on the side of your house, and every time you get wads of millions, you just put another paint, you know, load of, you know, you just paint it. Cover over it. You just cover over it, mm. and then it just keeps coming back, and you get more millions, and now you've got b- a billion, and you just keep keep going. And so the whole structure needs to change is what they're saying. And look, I don't profess to have all the answers, but that's not my job. Mm. And my job is not to make friends with Gronya Moss, and it's not to make friends with... Uh, Tracy Martin. My job is to show if something's broken, um, that you know, my job is to show it's broken. What are we going to do about it? That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Newsroom Investigations' Mel Reid. Mā te wā.